Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur, the low-carb cardiologist. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Bartell-Weiss from LaHoyaNutritionalHealth.com. Now, as you're going to hear me say, this is a, a special interview for me because Lauren and I actually grew up across the street from each other. How often does that happen? You you know somebody practically your whole life. You go to school with them. You grow um, you grow up across the street, and then you just lose touch for years, and then reconnect over the low carb lifestyle. She found out what I was doing, and she is amazingly qualified for what she's doing. So let me tell you about it. She got her master's of nutritional biochemistry from Tufts. Then she got a PhD in behavioral nutrition from Columbia. Then she became board certified as a clinical nutrition specialist scholar. And then she's done research with both academic and pharma-based research. And she has her own clinical practice where she's helping teens, she's helping adults, and she's helping them improve their lives with a low-carb lifestyle. She has a number of practical tips, um, a lot from the behavioral side, which we probably don't spend enough time talking about. Uh, so I hope you walk away from this interview with a lot of those little pearls because she really has a lot of them and she knows what she's talking about. She has a lot of experience, a lot of education, and her passion for helping people really comes out. So uh, I truly enjoyed this interview. It had a, um, a very special meaning for me. I hope you can appreciate that and you enjoy it as well. So if you want the full transcripts, go to dietdoctor.com. And of course, you can go learn all about our guides and our uh, recipes and our meal plans. There's a ton of information on dietdoctor.com. So enjoy this interview today with Lauren Bartell Weiss. Lauren Bartell Weiss, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a very special interview for me because we grew up across the street from each other. We sure we went did. to the same schools. We've known each other since we were little kids, and then we sort of went apart during college and after college, but now reconnecting through the world of nutrition and low carb. Who would have guessed this mm -hmm. when we were walking to high school together? Right. Pretty strange uh, situation how that worked, but your training to get to this point in nutrition is pretty amazing. I mean, a master's in nutrition, nutritional biochemistry from Tufts, a PhD in nutrition from um, Columbia, and now a board-certified clinical nutrition specialist. I mean, you've got the training in nutrition, yet you're not singing the usual song that most nutritionists are singing. So tell us a little bit about your nutritional journey and how you got to the point where you are now with how you're helping people with nutrition. Right. So the journey, my nutritional journey has not been linear whatsoever. I think there's been um, a, lot of, a lot of paths along the way that um, had, have gotten me to the place I'm at now as a low-carb, what I consider myself a low-carb nutritionist. In grad school, I was more of a Mediterranean diet person, but I soon came to realize that the effect that carbohydrates have on our body and on our insulin levels, and doing trial and error on myself, I decided that low-carb was really the way to go and the way to have long-term success with weight loss and keeping the weight off uh, over long-term. Yeah, and you, you had mentioned, we were talking offline, how a lot of people in the low-carb world seem to have this personal journey because it's not being taught. It's not taught in nutrition schools. It's not taught in medical schools. So we almost have to find it on our own. And, and that's why I think it's so important for people like you to now be promoting this message, to have the, the academic certifications and to be promoting the message. Right. So when you started your career, though, after your PhD, you went right into research. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the clinical counseling came later, and I want to get into all that. But you went right into research. And tell us a little bit about your initial research project, the omega-3, omega-6, and, and hip fractures, right? Right. So my PhD work was I was really interested in inflammation. So, and, and originally how it relates to bone health, the risk of osteoporosis. So uh, I found a data set that had information on omega-3s and omega-6 fatty acids, and I continued looking at that for my, for my dissertation research. I looked at uh, the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 and how that affected bone health. I looked at omega-3 um, intake and fish intake and how that uh, looked at for the risk of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And then I continued on with the omega-3s for my postdoc, which I did at Rady Children's Hospital. And I actually looked at the intake of fatty acids in pregnant mothers and the risk of a birth defect called gastroschisis in the babies. And what I found um, 
pretty consistently was the benefit of the omega-3 fatty acids and the detriment of the omega-6 fatty acids. So for the fractures, for cognitive dysfunction, and for the birth defects. Mm -hmm. And it was you found all three of those were related to a lower omega-6, sorry, the the beneficial effects would be related to a lower omega-6, omega-3 ratio yes. and more likely to be at risk with a higher omega-6, omega-3 ratio. Right. And is that what you were looking at, specifically the ratio? For the bone density, I looked specifically at the ratio. And with the Alzheimer's, I just looked at the omega-3 intake. Mm -hmm. And with the gastroschisis, I just looked at the omega-6 intake. Okay. So I'm not all that knowledgeable about getting your PhD thesis, but usually I, I think people do one study, but it looks like you did three studies all, all for your PhD. I actually did um, four studies, and I, I also looked at um, leptin, which is a satiety hormone that you're probably familiar with, mm -hmm. and, and that's the effect on bone density for that. So I did kind of um, go outside the box and look at different studies, just more to get research experience, yeah. um, but all kind of came back to that inflammation theory. Yeah, so so you're looking at a data set. So the data's already been collected. The people have already gone through the process. It was it's observational, not it wasn't randomized, and you're mining the data for association. So mm -hmm. tell us, you know, you have to do what you have to do to get your PhD thesis, yes, right? You, you don't do. have a lot of funding, you don't have a lot of time, you need research experience and you need to publish. Right. So what does that say about sort of the quality of that research though? So, right. So I looked at, um, used a prospective cohort study. It's about a 20, 25 year study. So you can imagine the loads of data that you have and, and the access to the data you have. And I was always taught to come up with an a priori hypothesis mm -hmm. and not to go what we call on a fishing expedition. That's important. So, so having that a priori hypothesis is super important, but that doesn't always mean that you stick with that hypothesis. So yes, a fishing expedition could happen. I think I was lucky in that I really had um, my theory and my hypothesis ready and organized, and I found something that you know, I, I expected to find. But as with other large data sets, and we know the issues in nutritional epi, that the, the observational studies and the cohort studies, it's really hard to assess diet, to, yeah. to get accurate measurements of diet, and to, and to weed out individual nutrients and how those are related to disease. It's very, very difficult, but that's, that's really all we have now. Yeah, when you're using food frequency questionnaires and looking at da data that's confounded by so many uh, confounding variables and healthy user bias and it... And, I get it. You know, we need to get data from somewhere, but I think the problem comes taking that data and then shouting it from the rooftops as if it's fact, right? right? So we can say from your study, your study showed an association between higher omega-6 and hip fractures. It does not prove that omega-6 causes hip fracture. Absolutely. Right. But you could see how, uh, you know, Time Magazine or something could run that type of right. cover. And uh, that's what's happening so much in nutritional epi epidemiology studies. Right. But then after that, you transitioned um, into working with a drug company on a mm -hmm. sarcopenia study. Mm -hmm. So tell us how that was was different. That experience was a little different. So yeah, I, I told myself I would never, ever do a drug clinical trial, but somehow I ended up um, running one and it was a really interesting experience. You, you, you have to completely follow a protocol. Even when I tried to deviate from the protocol or share my opinion, whether I thought something was right or wrong, I was knocked down immediately. So it was a, a little bit of a different uh, experience for me. But yeah, having everything completely controlled is different than going and analyzing data. You don't know who collected, you don't know the participants that were involved. So it is a really different experience. Uh, why I did do this clinical trial is because it was a drug plus an exercise program. So my justification was, if we're gonna be doing some kind of exercise with these participants, then I, I was okay doing it. Yeah. So were, were they randomized into drug plus exercise or exercise alone? Everybody got exercise and they were randomized into three different levels of, of the drug. I see. Okay. And everybody had to meet a certain criteria for protein, which is big for sarcopenia and big for older adults. So most of them did not meet that criteria on their own and had to be supplemented with protein. What was the age, the average age of the patient? The age was ab um, above 70. Above 70. Mm -hmm. And so do you remember what protein level you were shooting for? It was, it, it was the RDA level. It yeah. was the, the 0.8 so kilograms per body weight. But okay. 
Yeah, the research that I've done that really they're saying that that's just really not enough for older adults. Right. So interesting as the requirement should go up as we age, right. the, the recommendations don't necessarily reflect that. That is very true. So then the quality of the data that comes out from the drug company sponsored randomized trial that was probably funded with plenty of money versus the, you know, looking through a cohort study that had already been done on a shoestring budget, the quality's a little different in terms of what it can tell you. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what people kind of need to realize about the, the difference of, of um, nutritional research that's out there and versus drug company research that's out there and, and how the funding can impact it, but also how you're more of a cog in the wheel. I mean, like you, you didn't have a chance to let your expertise and your experience guide how this could be a better study. They wanted it one way and the skeptic could say it's because they had it in a certain way to make their drug look better. Right. That's what the skeptic would say. Right. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. All right. And then, so you're, you're still on staff at UCSD, still doing research, but now you're, you've branched out to do more, more clinical work and actually help people one-on-one. -on -one. And that's where your background as, as a behavioral nutritionist, I think probably really shines because we can talk about what to eat all day long, but if people aren't going to actually take the steps to make that part of their lifestyle, it doesn't matter. So you know, I think a lot of people are unfamiliar probably with behavioral nutrition. I, I have to admit I was. I didn't realize it was you could get a degree in behavioral <laughs> nutrition until we reconnected. And I think that's fantastic because it's so important. So walk us through sort of the, the thought process of what makes behavioral nutrition different from just nutritional science. So behavioral nutrition is really the link between nutrition and psychology. So as you said, you can tell someone what to eat, but how to get someone to change what they've eaten for 10, 15, 20 years is very, very difficult. So not only do you have to educate them on what to eat, but you have to educate them how to incorporate that into your lifestyle. Everybody has different lifestyles. One eating plan or diet's gonna work for one and not work for the other, but in order to progress somebody to achieving long-term dietary behavior change success, it, it has to be guided by some kind of behavioral change along the way. Yeah. And so there are different stages of people being ready for behavioral change or where they are. So tell us about that. So people can sort of learn to sort of internalize this with themselves and kind of figure out where they are in that stage. And, and I'm curious how you... Um, approach people differently depending on what stage they're in? So there's really two, th two major theories that behavioral nutritionists use. It comes from um, psychology research of behavior change for other conditions such as smoking cessation or phys even for physical activity. You know, nutrition is different because everybody has to eat. So figuring out what to eat and how to incorporate that into your into your life is, is not as easy. So there's a social cognitive theories which really look at and try to identify beliefs and attitudes about what they're eating, about how they wanna be, about what changes they wanna make. So there's a lot of different determinants that can be identified in, in, in people as to what's going to create a change. There's a health belief model that looks at perceived risk. So what's the risk of not making the change? You could have, so I do that with people who have family histories of chronic disease, someone with a family history of heart disease, or diabetes, I say, look, you have a family history. Your father had diabetes. Your grandfather had diabetes. You know, you could be next in line if you don't make the change. So you have to kind of create this risk in their mind. And that's, it's a little, you know, manipulation, but that's kind of what these theories do is they, they bring this information out for people to really think about it or perceived benefits. What are the benefits of making a change? Or the perceived barriers. What, what barriers do you see that are in the way of making the change. So we work through that and incorporate that into the straight nutrition education. Yeah. Then you also have the stages models, which you're probably familiar with the trans theoretical model or the stages of change. Yeah. So before you get in the stages, I want to get into that. But this first model you talked about, sort of like the carrot and the stick model, sort of. And I think it's interesting because, you know, read behavioral therapy that are, or behavioral science that our brains are wired for the negative far more than the positive. Right. So do you find that, that the, the stick, the watch out, this is where you're headed, this is where it could be, works better than the carrot, that these are the benefits you might get? It, it just, it's really individual and yeah. it depends on, you have to get to know that person. You have to kind of get a feeling for what's going to work in that person. Sometimes I try one thing, I'm like, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to have to try another thing. So it really is getting to know the person 
and trying to figure out how am I going to motivate them? How am I going to really get this information in them and put it to good use? And yeah. it really is a skill, which is why I spent 10 years studying behavioral <laughs> nutrition, because it's not just a book that I can read and say, okay, well, I'm going to try this and this, and if that doesn't work, then too bad. So it really is a skill that I acquired for a, that took a very long time in trying to read the person and figure out which determinant and which motivator or mediator is going to work to get them to say, okay, I need to make this change. And along the way, trying to identify the, the mediators that are going to help progress that person um, through the journey. Yeah, with the clients who I work with, either individual consulting or in my six-month program, I always want them to write down their goals. And a lot of That's people think it's way. kind of hokey, and they're <laughs> like, eh, why do I need to write it down? But it's such an important step, and like you're saying, trying to find their motivator because it's something you need to come back to over and over again. And for some, it could be avoiding the negative, and some people could be promoting the positive. Right. Yeah. yeah, I always I always do goal setting. That's one of the first things I do in my first sessions. It's short-term goal setting, so goal setting within a week. Mm -hmm. And then so the next time I see them, I want to know if those goals have been met and what obstacles or barriers did not allow them to meet those goals. We'll go through that and work through that and then set new goals for every week. And hopefully yeah. by the end, they have all these great goals that have helped them get through the for long-term success. And then there's always a few longer-term goals that are really more of a, like a three to six months out. And goal setting is super important part. Yeah, and great point about the difference between the short and the long-term long goals. Because if all you set are six-month or two-year goals, so easy to get frustrated and Absolutely. give up when you're not progressing. Yeah, Especially with my teenage clients, we do a lot of goal setting, and they're very short-term goals. Yeah, because that positive feedback is so great. If you can achieve those short-term goals, it really gives you more motivation to continue. Absolutely. Okay, well, I interrupted you. You were about to talk about the different stages. So okay, let's, let's so yeah, so there. I was talking about the stages of change model. Yeah. And that really says that people in different stages, whether they're in pre-contemplation or contemplation or action, they need different motivators. Or we need to identify different mediators that are going to help them progress through those stages. So I usually use a combination of um, all the theories and all the mediators, depending on what I see my client needs. But a big thing for the stages of change is self-efficacy, another word for self-confidence. So it's really giving these people the self-confidence and and that they can make this change because that's the biggest thing. Making a dietary change is a huge lifestyle change. It's not very easy. So you have to figure out how am I going to increase the confidence? How am I going to empower them to be able to, to be successful with this change and be okay with being out for dinner or in social settings and sticking to their plan and giving them the tools to get through difficult times like that. Yeah. So you mentioned the pre-contemplation stage. So that's generally sort of the first stage where they're not even really considering a change yet. Right. And mm -hmm. kind of there's not a whole lot to do at that there point. There's not is a whole there? lot to do unless there is a risk of some condition, unless there is an obesity or something that needs to be done that you can try to to get them through to the contemplation stage. Right. So, so that basically, they don't come to me in the pre-contemplation stage. I usually have to seek people out or I hear, oh, well, I have this sleep apnea or I have some condition. And then I said, well, you really should do something about it. And then I try to work with them through that. So yeah, the pre-contemplation is hard to work with, but it's my goal is to get them to contemplation and then to preparation. Yeah, I think unfortunately, I see far more pre-contemplation subjects than you do because they're in with their heart attack or their complications from diabetes or high blood pressure and they, they're not even willing to consider changing their lifestyle yet. And you have, unfortunately, sometimes you have to use that negative as, as the motivator. Mm -hmm. But once they get into the contemplation stage, then you sort of can get your hands on them because right. now they're thinking about it. Now it's in their brain. And, and so how do you help them transition to action? So that's when we start setting goals and talking about barriers and talking about perceived risks and talking about benefits of making the change. Mm -hmm. So depending on what the person's situation is, I really try to use those determinants of behavior change to, to really get them into action. And then education is really important in the contemplation stage too. Educating them about nutrition and about food and using evidence-based research to really show this is where the research is and this is where you are and we really want to be in a different place. So they've gotten to the contemplation stage, they're starting to think about it, you're educating them, you're goal setting with them 
and now it's time for action. Mm -hmm. So the action stage, is that more about sort of the logistics, sort of like the recipes and how to do things? Action uh, is like, I'm ready to go tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's really setting them up um, for long-term success. And it is, it is a, um, a journey. And it is a journey to get there. Uh, I already, I have a lot of people that already come in action who have tried many diets, unsuccessful, have tried the keto diet, weren't doing it correctly, can't figure out, you know, what's going on. So I do get a lot of people already in action. I just kind of have to have them take a step back, reassess, and move forward correctly. Yeah, it's not like it's a linear process. Mm -hmm. It's a life. There's nothing right. in life that's linear. Right. So it's always going to be sort of back and forth and having to reassess and adjust. And the stages of change really incorporates the idea of relapse right. and setback. So there's determinants that are incorporated into that model too, that when there is a setback or a relapse, that they haven't completely given up. You provide them with skills and tools. Okay, you had a little, a little hiccup here. Don't worry about it. This is what we're going to do. Next time you're in this situation, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, so if someone's just learning about keto on social media and they're in one of these social media sites where everybody loves keto, everybody loves low-carb, high-fat, it's the best thing ever, you're going to get all these benefits, and then they start it and they don't necessarily see all those benefits at first, they're going to get frustrated right. and they're going to give up. So that's where someone could benefit working with someone like you because you would. how would you prepare them for a different course? Well, I mean, I, I would explain to them that it's not just going to, you're not going to lose the 20 pounds in the first week. And you, and with my keto, my keto clients now, I'm in daily communication with them. Yeah. They need to know, I need, I check in on them. I've had, I have a few saying we're not losing weight. I've been on it a week and I have to keep them motivated and tweak things if they need to be tweaked. But you just, you have to keep them motivated, especially in the beginning, if they're not seeing immediate, the immediate effects. And that's why I do what I do. I, I love doing that. I don't mind being texted at nine o'clock at night. I'm, I'm at this restaurant. There's nothing. What do I do? Or, you know, I'm not feeling that great. Or I like to keep them motivated. And that really is an important part and really close to my heart that I, that this is an individualized, personalized approach. And to get some people through it, I just have to be there for them until they can really go on their own. And as I talked about having the self-efficacy to take it and run with it. I love that passion. I love that commitment. And that's certainly not what you're going to get if you just ask your local doctor for nutritional advice. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of which, um, I guess jumping around a little bit, you actually taught nutrition in medical school. Mm -hmm. If you want to call it that, you, the way you described your experience sounds like you were extremely limited in what you could do. So tell me about that experience. Right. So um, I, I taught the only nutrition class in medical at this certain medical school and I was given 50 minutes to talk to second year um, medical school students, basically about nutritional epi. There really wasn't time to go into anything about foods, anything about insulin, anything about carbohydrates. So it was basically different study designs that you can use for nutrition studies and different dietary assessment methods. Hmm. And that was basically it. I, I did sit in on a couple small groups which where they bring in the simulated patients or they bring in an obese patient and the students have to assess the patient and the patient leaves and they come back with dietary advice. And I was just blown away by um, some of the conversations that the medical students were having with these simulated patients because they were, they were, there was no basis for the information. And it just really bums me out that these medical students are not getting more nutrition education. Yeah, but then you mentioned that they're starting to ask for it. Is that right? Yes, I did read a recent study that Harvard did, and they've asked the medical students about having a lifestyle, lifestyle medicine incorporated into their curriculum. It seems that everybody really wants it because doctors are going to be asked about nutrition. And if they don't have the right education, they really shouldn't be giving um, this information to people, and they should be referred to uh, dietitians or to nutritionists. So... Um, yeah, it, it seems that the medical students want it. I just don't know how they're going to ever figure out a place to put it in the medical school curriculum unless it's totally revamped. And what to teach in that segment. I mean, you know, a lot of the big push now is you have to teach a vegetarian, uh, low fat, 
approach. And if that's what medical students are being taught as the one way to eat for health, then that's, you're almost better off not teaching them at all. So that's this sort of a double-edged sword, isn't this is it? This very true. It's very hard to get a really good education in nutrition stuck into a, new, a, a block somewhere in, in medical school. So yeah. I, I think we have a long way to go with that, but hopefully we'll, we'll find a solution and really try to incorporate nutrition maybe into the different blocks, maybe a few nutrition lectures in the different blocks as it relates to that disease condition or that or that organ system. So right, like the diabetes discussion has to have a low carb nutrition. It has to have a low carb part. nutrition part. Yeah. So it, it's a long way, and people I know are working hard um, to go in that direction. Yeah. So when you first were saying like the only the only class you taught was about the different types of studies and the epidemiology, my first thought was like, well, what a waste. But I guess if you only have 50 minutes, that's probably the best thing to talk about because then hopefully you're arming them to make the decisions on their own as long as they're not indoctrinated so deep in, in one dogma that they can't see, you know, can't think on their own and interpret the studies on right, their own. Right, right. So it was more on these are the these are the types of nutrition studies that happen. Yeah. These are the strengths and limitations of the different study designs. These are the strengths and limitations of the different dietary assessment tools. So at least it gives them some kind of skill when they are reading the nutrition literature to be able to critically think about the uh, take-home message right. for those research papers. Being published in a peer-reviewed journal does not mean it is worthy of changing our life around and, and saying that this is the one way to do things. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, transitioning back to um, the more practical side of things. So you're mentioning how you're constantly helping your clients sort of change and tweak and understand that it's not a one straight line process, which I think is so important. But what are some of the biggest roadblocks you see in your clients? Um, the roadblocks to sort of get started. And then once they've been at it for like six months or something and, and starting to slip a little bit. So g give us um, some of the common roadblocks you see and how you can help people through those. Right. So a common roadblock, I think in the beginning is just pure education mm -hmm. and knowledge about the different types of eating plans that are out there um, talking about their goals and what kind of plan would fit in with their goals and fit in with their lifestyles. So up front, it really is about educating. And then once things get rolling, then we talk about you know, the barriers, time, money, um, family commitments, social commitments. They're really, they're, they're, I call them pros and cons, the cons being the reasons why I don't want to make the change, but they're really excuses for you know, not making the change. So I do a lot of pros and cons. It's called decisional balance, kind of deciding which is the better way to go, to, to list the pros and these are going to be the benefits, or to list the cons and be okay with, well, it's just too hard, or I don't have time, or carbs are easy to get and cheap. So, And I go through those cons with them and try to, to work through them and turn them, and turn them into pros. Yeah. And then do you see similar things when someone's been at a dietary change for three months or six months, or is it sort of a new set of issues that pop up Usually they're point? new sets, which is why yeah. I, we completely set new goals. Almost every week we're setting new goals, and sometimes there are relapses, and we have to work through those too. Yeah. Um, I think that social gatherings, family vacations, I think those are some of the, the big roadblocks that I have to work through a lot. Yeah, traveling is very difficult. Yeah. So the, the, those are uh, important roadblocks that need to be addressed, hopefully prior to the vacations or the traveling, but sometimes they happen after and then we have to reset. Yeah. And now you've you've gravitated to a, a mostly low-carb approach, but not necessarily for everybody and definitely not keto for everybody. And you see like a range and you really approach people as individuals. So give us some of the right. the guidelines you use to say, you know, how do you decide what carb level is right for somebody or how aggressive to be with a low carb approach? Right. So I'm definitely a low carb nutritionist. I don't advocate anything except some version of a low carb. So um, I do, I, I discuss keto with people. Most people come into me saying, I heard the keto diet is fabulous and I want to get on it. Now, when they leave, and I tell them how strict it is and how motivated you have to be and um, that it's really restrictive. A lot of them say, you know, I can't do this. What are my other options? So then I go into um, a low-carb paleo, which is always an option, or a low-carb Mediterranean, which is an option. So I do take some of these more um, popular eating styles and just make them more low-carb. Um, I'm big on low glycemic index. I think 
that most of my clients that come in wanting keto leave doing a more of a low glycemic um, index eating plan because it's just better for their lifestyle. So I basically have to figure out their lifestyle, figure out what they do on the weekends and whether this eating plan is maintainable for them. And when I get someone that says, I just can't give up my beer on the weekends, then I have to rethink that yeah. and, and find another plan that's going to work, you know, keeping them on something five days a week and letting them slip a little bit, teaching them how to slip correctly and hopefully them having success with that. But it really depends on on each individual person. Yes, you know, so interesting. Every time I hear someone, just like you you just did say, you know, the keto diet is very restrictive and very limiting. And for the people who it works for, it's not restrictive or limiting at all. They like love it. There's They can't imagine any other way. Mm -hmm. But in our society, in our average society, it is extraordinarily restrictive and limited, but really shouldn't be. I mean, it should be sort of the default, but our society has just twisted that completely around so that it appears so restrictive. Right. So, yeah. so for my keto clients that are successful, they absolutely love it and they couldn't think of eating any other way. Yeah. For, for those... I'm not sure that the keto for the long, long term is good for them. It just depends on the on the person and whether they can sustain that lifestyle. So for, for those people, when they're closer around their goal, we try to find another low-carb version of another eating plan that they can incorporate without having, you know, the weight gain. But it's trial and error. It's not always going to be a perfect science. Someone could get off of keto, stay on a low-carbohydrate diet, still gain a little weight back. So it's kind of, um, it takes a while to figure out what works for somebody yeah. and where they're going to be happy with the lifestyle and the eating lifestyle that they're choosing. And now you also work with two different sort of population sets, which I imagine take a completely different approach because you work with adults and you work with teens. Mm -hmm. I imagine teens are just a whole other species <laughs> practically when it comes to nutritional changes and because their friends are going out for pizza and yeah. ice cream and they're having, you know, sodas with lunch every day, their friends are. So it's, there's probably a lot of peer pressure and, and social pressure and just a whole other mindset. So how do you approach teens differently? So teens definitely have to be approached differently. Not only do I have to work with the teens, but I have to work and convince the parents that what I'm doing with their teenagers is going to be beneficial. I have a lot yeah. of teens come in, well, my parents want me on the keto. And I, then I have to explain to them what exactly what the keto is, that when your friends are out at McDonald's or having cupcakes, that you just can't participate in. And I had um, a couple clients saying, well, while my, all my friends are eating cupcakes, I pulled out my seaweed crackers or something. And it's just... That's it, impressive. <laughs> right. So... It just needs to be a plan that teenagers can um, withstand through social pressures and through just being a teenager. So I don't advocate keto diet for teens unless there's some you know, major weight issue and the weight needs to, needs to come off pretty quickly. Yeah. But they have to be super motivated. The parents have to be on board. Everybody has to be on board for something like that. So most of my teenagers end up doing either a low-carb low paleo or a low glycemic index, which allows someone to enjoy a cupcake if they want to enjoy a cupcake with their friends, just knowing that you're going to have to eat it, you're going to have to find a fat somewhere to eat it with, and you may have a little bit of a, of a blood sugar setback that day. But I educate these teens. They know what happens now when they eat something with a high glycemic index carb. So they're aware, I, I just ate that in 20 minutes, my blood sugar is going to spike and I'm not going to feel that good. Yeah. So, so they, they have to make those decisions. I think that would be really important, connecting with, with teenagers and adolescents, connecting them with a better understanding of how they feel and how that's related to their actions. Because I think most of the time, most people probably don't have that much of a good body awareness right. and, and a cause and effect. And, you know, ugh, I feel, you know, kind of lethargic and tired. I probably just didn't sleep last night right. as opposed to I just ate a bunch mm -hmm, of junk mm -hmm. 20, 30 minutes ago right. and that's why I feel bad. So yeah. I do educate them on the biochemistry. They really, in a, in a you know, bio, biochemistry 101, yeah. I do educate them in teenage terms. This is what happens to your body when you eat the different foods. These are the foods we need. And uh, I think that that really helps them. And we do a lot of behavioral uh, interventions with teenagers, a lot of goal setting, mm -hmm. a lot of getting over the obstacles. A lot of them text me, I'm going out with my to pizza with my friends. What are my options today? So we work through a lot and I have to be there for them too. Yeah. And I remember you mentioning the difference between like one-on-one -on -one consulting and group consulting and how group consulting can be so beneficial for our teens because they 
then they see that connection. Oh yeah, here's someone like me right. doing this and gives them that sort of connection of, of building a community. And so do you, you still do a lot of that with group consulting? With I your only teens? have, um, either two on one. So usually someone brings a friend and okay. they have someone to work with and someone to shoot ideas off, off with. Yeah. And then group settings are, are really good unless someone really wants to come in and see me alone, which is kind of boring when you're not with a friend. Um, I, I see mostly groups of pe- groups of teens, and they can all learn how to eat healthy together, and and not you know I don't I don't uh, choose people out for what their goals are. The the goals they work with me are personal goals. Mm-hmm. They're not really shared with the group unless they want to be shared. Yeah. But the overall nutrition education and working through some of these obstacles, they're basically the same with all the teenagers. Yeah. And now how about athletes? Because I know we were talking before, you saw a couple teenage water polo players mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they actually, they wanted to go on a ketogenic diet, but you sort of talked them out of it. So tell me about your approach of athletes and how that's a little different as well. Right. Well, I think, I think athletes are um, a different group. I think that, that there are athletes, if they're not marathon runners, that can survive off some kind of modified low-carbohydrate diet. I know when I was at Tufts in grad school and everybody became a triathlete, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to become a triathlete too. And I was working out three, four, five hours a day and then going to Jamba Juice and getting a smoothie and a bagel, and I couldn't figure out why I was the heaviest I've ever been. Yeah. So there is education for athletes that there, there's a fine balance and yeah, you might need some healthier whole grains and some lower glycemic index carbs to kind of get you through your sport. But the days that you're not really exercising a lot, you don't need to be carbo-loading. And I think that this whole carbo-loading issue you know, came about from marathon runners, but, but a lot of athletes think I act, act, absolutely have to carbo-load. And those um, recreational athletes really don't need that. So I ha- it's everybody's individual. I have to see you know, how much energy has been expended, how quick they need the energy. And then on their off times, I try to get them to the lower carbohydrate um, plan if weight loss is a goal. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. Selective carb use right, right before a big workout or, uh, or competition, and then maybe right after, and then the rest of the time trying to go for a lower carb mm-hmm. variety. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's a, an interesting approach. And again, teenagers and adults, probably a little different because- right. You know, for that teenager, that football game is going to be the most important part of their life mm-hmm. at that moment. Where for an adult, their workout at the gym, not quite the same um, emotional connection to it. So right. being at your at your absolute best might not be the requirements. You can do that workout fasted or mm-hmm. low carb as mm-hmm. an adult, but as Absolutely. as a teen, you might need those carbs for the extra energy. Right. When you were talking about carbohydrates, you mentioned healthy whole grains. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's so interesting how... It's almost become one word, healthy whole grains. Uh, so I want to explore that a little bit with you. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you look at the research of, of whole grains. So give me your, your idea or your understanding of the research of whole grains and what makes them healthy whole grains. Well, the reason I call them healthy is they contain, you know, some important nutrients and, and fiber is a big one that I see on the keto diet. Um, some people are having issues relating to not getting enough fiber. They're not going out of their way for the vegetables. So incorporating whole grains um, into a lifestyle the correct way on, say, a li- low glycemic plan um, is okay. However, the glycemic index of most whole grains is still very high. So finding the right place for them if they are required, because they do have important nutrients, especially for the teenage, the teenagers. Uh, I don't know if whole grains are required if you really seek out the nutrients that are in whole grains in other um, types of foods. But fiber is my big, my biggie for the whole grains, and uh, that's really important to be getting uh, regular fiber. Yeah, that's a good point because I think an adult who's going low-carb and keto might be uh, much more conducive to eating a, a, just a plethora of vegetables to get all their fiber, get all their nutrients, whereas a teen might not, and they might not want to do those vegetables. It's going to be a challenge to get that in them. So then maybe they do need the the whole grains from that standpoint. And that's, what's so interesting about whole grain research. You know, if you compare it to refined grains, it's going to show a benefit, right? but it's never actually been compared to a low carb, high vegetable, high meat kind of diet. Like that comparison hasn't been done. Right. 
Um, that's what I think is so interesting. But but again, the the age of the patient might make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And then fruits as well, right? Fruits are promoted as as mm. healthy and nutritious, and you know I'm sure a lot of the teenage athletes are having fruit with every meal right. um, to get their carbs and. Again, if your goals are athletic performance, maybe that's okay. If your goal is weight loss, do you approach it differently? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, fruit is sugar, no matter how, what, what form it comes in. Yeah. And it still increases our insulin. And it still does the same thing as a normal carbohydrate does. So, you know, I'm more on the keto bandwagon. The berries are super important. They're a great source of vitamins and minerals, antioxidants. I think there's a place there. They're lower on the glycemic index. So um, in terms of the normal normal adult, if they want to incorporate some fruit into their day, you know, you can have some of the berries, have them early. And, um, and the teenagers, especially if they're exercising, I think, I think that fruits are an important part of their, of their growth and development. But I think you can overdo the fruit thinking, oh, I'm eating only fruit because this is really healthy. And it actually is a carbohydrate. Right, right. So giving you sugar and insulin swings and gaining right. weight. Right, right, right. So you said early in the day, Tell me more about that because that's a very important concept. So it took me a long time to get to this plan that works for me, and now I advocate to my clients. So if I'm not doing keto, which happens sometimes, um, I do. I, I do. I develop this plan that after th- that three o'clock is my last any type of basically carbohydrate uh, meal. So after three at three o'clock, I can have a snack if I want if I want the carbs. The lower glycemic carbs, I, I, I allow myself. Usually I don't want them, but if I have to have, to have it or I want a bowl of fruit or something at that point, three o'clock is my last time. And the theory behind that is by five, around five o'clock, my blood sugar, my insulin levels have now tapered off. They've now stabilized. And then I eat my dinner, basically a keto dinner. So um, any uh, uh, with a glycemic index under 20, which I developed myself calling a very low glycemic index. So if you're eating a food, which is basically a protein and a green vegetable, because there's really nothing left to eat, if you're eating a glycemic index under 20, then your insulin is low and you're not building, building the fat basically while you sleep. So it's kind of a mechanism to either not build or try to lose some fat while you're sleeping. Yeah. Good point. And, and the research out of actually here at Salk, um, Salk Institute with Sachin Panda and the circadian rhythm of our, of our uh, insulin cycles, basically, and that we're more insulin sensitive in the morning, less insulin sensitive in the evening, that makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. So not only from a, a social standpoint, because if you, if you don't have that restriction, you can snack all night long with, with carby foods or right. certainly kids could. Um, but you set that restriction, so it's more mm-hmm. in line with our circadian rhythm, our insulin, and keeps you from snacking on the on the unhealthier foods at night. I think that's really helpful, right. so you can burn that fat while you sleep. Right, it's it's yeah. a really good plan for teenagers because they know if they're going to be studying all night that they can't be um, snacking on the goldfish and snacking on the chips. So coming up with creative low glycemic index um, snacks after dinner is, you know, difficult, but we do find some that teens are okay with. And it really does because they're snacking all night when they're doing homework. So it really is coming up with a plan for them. And that 3 p.m. cutoff um, seems to work. Yeah. Now with a lot of clients, um, weight loss is sort of the biggest goal, but you also have clients who have trouble with weight gain or that they, they feel better on a keto diet, but they're actually losing weight and don't want to, and you have to find tips for them to maintain weight? Yes, definitely. I mean, if I go on a keto diet for an extended period of time, I'm at a weight that, that is, is too light and not comfortable where I want to be. So, you know, it does happen the other reverse, but it's finding ways to maintain that balance, and everybody's different. And that's when I try to, try to transition them to maybe a low-carb Mediterranean or um, a low glycemic index. So it just, it, it, it's different for everybody. People who want to stay on the keto, then I've got to figure out a way for them to either eat more or get some more, some more fats in. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is difficult to, to have to um, get someone to gain too much weight on a uh, on a keto diet. Yeah. That's where I find macadamia nuts or, um, any salted nut really is, is a, a great source of a snack for extra calories. Right. But then if you, 
are not trying to gain weight and you have that as a snack regularly, it's a huge impediment to weight loss. Right. So it can work right. Both that, ways. You know, that's something I found with a keto diet, which has been a little frustrating for me is all, all everybody talks about are the saturated fats. Oh, I can eat eggs. I can eat bacon. I can eat sausage. But there's not, in my feeling, there's not enough emphasis on the healthier fats. They're harder to get. The, the omega-3s, the, the monounsaturated fats like avocado and olive oil, it seems like those are uh, not as readily used on the keto diet. And I feel like those should really be emphasized because they're just better for our health. Um, they give us more health benefits. I'm not anti-saturated fat, but I think there definitely should be a balance of the, the healthier unsaturated fats with the saturated fats. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a great point that you make. Um, I have a little trouble with the healthier fats, unhealthier, because it implies that the other fats are unhealthy, right. which I don't think is what you're saying. Right. But I think that's the implication most people get. If those fats are healthy, then the other fats must be unhealthy. And right. that's not necessarily the the way it is. So But some of the unsaturated fats just have additional benefits. Yeah. Okay. So so monounsaturated fats are you know, cholesterol lowering or increase your HDL level. So there are additional benefits to the unsaturated fats. And I just don't feel like there's enough emphasis um, in the keto diet that we really need uh, some of these unsaturated fats and we need to kind of balance out the saturated um, with the unsaturated. I, I don't think that saturated um, fats are unhealthy. They're certainly better than a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. But I think there are options and balance that yeah. need to um, occur during a keto diet. Yeah, so interesting to sort of put ourselves in the perspective of someone who's learning about a, a low-carb keto diet for the first time and where they're going to get their information from and what that mm -hmm. information is. Mm -hmm. And it's, it can be so variable depending on where you go on social media right. or on the news. And a lot of times it is, you know, butter, bacon, cream, cheese, and, yeah. that's, and that's all it is. And for some people that's fantastic, mm -hmm. but for other people that might not work as well. Right. All right, so now, now let's transition for a second away from your role as a nutritionist and as a scientist and into your role as a mom, mm -hmm. right? You've got two daughters who are very active and athletic and are kids mm -hmm. and are gonna probably wanna eat like kids and act like kids. And so how do you balance that role as mom, letting your kids be kids, but knowing what you know about the nutrition and the science and wanting your kids to know that as well? Right, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting balance. I'm uh, certainly not, do, do not advocate low carb, low carb eating plans for my active children, but we do on most nights of the week uh, eat low glycemic. So there are some nights I'm like, we're just, tonight's a, a no-carb night, and we're just not doing the carbs, and we do the protein and vegetables, and they're okay with that. And they understand, yeah. they, they know what mommy does, they know what mommy looks like, they know that mommy's healthy. And so I, I approach that in, um, in a very delicate way. I don't make a big deal about it. I don't talk about, you know, bodies or, or weight or anything but they do know that what a carbohydrate does. They're probably one of the um, two most educated uh, eight and 11 year old uh, <laughs> girls in nutrition. They could probably uh, sit here and do a really interesting podcast for you one day. We might have to do that, yeah. <laughs> but um, they understand what happens. They know about insulin, they know what carbohydrates do. So they are, they are educated and sometimes my eight year old will say, well, I'm just not gonna eat my carbs today. So, but but not in a negative way. I think there's um, ways to approach that. I, I watched um, Peter Atia's podcast talking about his daughters, and right. that was interesting. My daughter and I actually watched that podcast together, and so it sparked a conversation about you know the different eating plans. He says his daughters think he's crazy. My kids sometimes say, you know, just eat one bite of this cookie, and I'm like, I don't want it. Come on, one bite's not gonna hurt you. So it's. You, you, you don't want to be crazy about it, but I said, you know what, it's, um, that's my rules. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's only 3.05. And I'm like, it's, it's, after, <laughs> it's after three. If I, if I allow 3.05, then I allow 3.30, and then I allow four, and this is my rule. So they have fun with it. They, um, I don't think it's going to develop any unhealthy eating issues, but they're, I, um, they're very educated. We were at dinner the other night, and my daughter said, who would ever dream of being a nutritionist for a job? Why'd she say that? I have no idea where that came from. And I said, you guys are so lucky that you have the knowledge you have about food and nutrition because this you can carry with you for a lifetime. Yeah. I said, people never learn the information that you have and how to stay healthy 
and how to be fit and how to be a great athlete. I said, you guys have a really big advantage. Yeah. And, and you, you present it in a way that's great because you don't make it a power struggle. You don't make it at a have to do this. You make it more of an education, which I think is so important. And that's one thing I, I thought was so interesting with my interview with Peter Atia, which was our, um, our second episode on the Diet Doctor podcast. But he said he wanted to stop being keto because he, he, he thought his daughter saw him as like a freak right. that he was doing this and he was crazy. And so if he's, she's going to have the cake, he's going to have the cake. Right. And I thought that that's interesting because you could look at it in two ways. You could also look at it just as a, as a teaching moment mm -hmm. to say, I choose not to do this for X, Y, and Z. Right. And, and you make your own decision. Right. You know, you could, you, you can approach it from either way. So mm -hmm. I, I respect him for making that decision. Mm -hmm. Personally, I take the other approach and my kids know daddy's not going to eat the right. cake. Daddy's right. not going to have the ice cream. Right. Daddy's not going to have that. And that's okay. And mm -hmm. I don't say you shouldn't have it either. Right. I just say, this is my choice and this is why. And you guys make your own choice. And right. it's an education thing. So they'll frequently ask me as they're eating their cake, do these, this have a lot of carbohydrates? Is this is this bad for me? I'm like, well, yeah. And they say, okay, as they're scooping it into <laughs> yeah, their mouth. But right. it's a process, right? It, you it, start it somewhere. is a process. And you know, loading them with the education will really help them in the future. And But, you know, without restricting kids at this point. Yeah. So it, it, you'd have to approach it um, very sensitively. And I'm in your camp. You know, mommy's not going to eat that. Um, I'm sure it tastes really good. So enjoy it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then, and then again, though, for for the parents that that don't have the knowledge or the time or the interest, you, know, you got to feel for those kids because they grow up not knowing anything. Just all they know is the low fat milk they get at school, right. and the vending machines they get at school, and the chips and the uh, the Frito Lay's and the Cheetos and whatever it is, and and that's why we have so many people that we need to work with as they right. get into adolescence and adults. And, and I wish there was an easy way to change it when they were younger. For well, unfortunately, we grew up off the food guy pyramid with the six to 11 servings of, of grains a day. And that's yeah. kind of how we grew up. That's how our parents grew up and they don't really know anything different. And it's going to take a lot of time and education to change people's thought process about that. And you know, hopefully this low carb movement and these low carbers are really going to help expedite that process because, you know, there is a major weight and obesity problem in the, not only in this country, but in this world and how we're going to approach it and try to change it and fix it is going to take just as many years as it took to develop, you know, 30 years of guidelines, you know, telling us to eat the carbohydrates. So, yeah. um, I'm, I'm glad to be part of this, um, process. And I hope that I can really impact as many people as I can with my journey and with my knowledge. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. I mean, mm -hmm. your, your passion, your energy, uh, and your knowledge is, is very clear. And uh, hopefully you will help a lot of people along the way. So again, thank you so much for joining me. And again, where can people find you to learn more about you? So LaHoyaNutritionalHealth.com is my consulting business. All right. Very good. Well, Lauren Bartell-Weiss, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.